0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 28 in our study of this wonderful book. And today we'll look at verses 10 through 22. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Feel free to follow along in the blue Bible and the pew pocket provided in front of you if you need it. I'll begin reading at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Here's a passage about the all-inspiring, yet often elusive, presence of Almighty God. That feeling, that experience, that reality that God Himself is actually with someone. If God really were with us, if we knew that He was with us, how would it change? The week to come. If you knew that He was with you tomorrow morning when you woke up, how would it change the way that you react to your children, the way you relate to your spouse, the way that you endeavor to represent Him in your vocation, in the way that you spend time with friends and family? I mean, if God were like really with you, like He was like there in some like knowable way, like what kind of impact would that have? We know that it'd be amazing, whatever it would be. And so many well-meaning believers, and even unbelievers alike, strive to experience the presence of God. We want to know that He's with us, we we want to know that He's at our side, And, and so we've adopted some popular methods through the years, some rather errant One of the four I'll share is actually helpful. I want to see if you can identify with any of these methods for channeling or experiencing God's presence. Sometimes people think that they can enjoy the presence of God by praying it down. Praying it down. I remember hearing that as a child even in Bible college. Someone told me that if you really want to know God's presence, you're going to draw a circle around yourself and you're going to get down on your knees and pray and you're not going to leave that circle until you experience the presence of God. Uh, I've I've tried that. I didn't draw the circle. (laughs) But I know what it's like to try to pray for hours waiting for some supernatural experience And frankly, the only thing I got was pneumonia. It was in the cold. (laughs) I was like, Lord, I know it's cold. You've got to show up. I'm just going to get sick. Well, guess what? I got sick. (laughs) If you try it, I'm not saying you shouldn't. Just do it indoors. But you know the experience. Praying it down. We think that by some type of... Of supernatural exercises or disciplines or commitments, whether it be prayer or fasting or Bible reading, that we could somehow manipulate the presence of Almighty God. He will all of a sudden, like, show up if we do enough. Some don't just try to, to pray it down, others will try to actually work it up. They work it up. This is uh, striving to do extra biblical things that they think will somehow, like, win them the favor of God. So, so it, maybe it works this way, where somebody thinks, man, I was really good this week. Like if I have a really good week, let's say that I live purely, let's say I don't get angry at my children, let's say that I'm really nice to people, maybe then I'll actually know what it's like to experience the presence of God. And I know that people believe this because they actually believe the opposite is true. When somebody does that which is not pleasing to God, they're walking around like in fear waiting for a lightning bolt to strike. That they think that there will be some way in which God's not going to work in them. I've actually heard people say who had to do some form of public ministry. Like on a Sunday, maybe they were going to teach a class or maybe they were going to read scripture. And they would say something like, man, I felt this pressure to live like really holy this week because I wanted to make sure that God was actually with me when I did what I was supposed to do on Sunday. What is that? That is working it up. That is, you thinking that by some kind of performance on your part, you're going to be able to secure God's presence for when you need it. So some pray it down. Some work it up. Some do something quite different. They try to just take it in. Take it in. This is the opposite error of the first. If the first one we could theologically call uh, pietism, this one is called quietism. When you actually just try to misuse Psalm 46 that we read a few minutes ago and just be still and know that God is there. Basically, it's a Christian form of yoga or meditation. Uh, people actually think that if they isolate themselves from everyone else, that they get out in nature, they can feel the breeze on their face, they can feel you know, just the sunshine like warming them up, that they will all of a sudden somehow, in some way, experience God in a mighty way. And I'm not denying that we experience the goodness of God in creation. But I can't guarantee you that a walk in the woods or even a few moments meditation is actually going to invite the special presence of God. It doesn't happen that way. And then there's a final option. And that is simply to live it out. To live it out. There are actually some people, believe it or not, Who simply believe, and this will blow your mind, they simply believe that because of what Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection, that God is already with them in a special way. And it is simply theirs to remember that he is with them and then to live in light of that. Now I know that one sounds really insane, but don't don't cross it off too soon. Because the passage that we're reading about this morning, this this particular story that we're studying, is all about how God's presence came upon one of the most notorious patriarchs in all of Old Testament history. So you've got to understand, the people who were originally reading or hearing uh, the, the book of Genesis, which includes the entire Torah, they were intensely interested in God's presence. I mean, because they were going into an unknown situation with some like outstanding opposition, fleeing death behind them, and they knew that if they were going to prevail, God's presence had to be with them in a special way. And so they were trying to figure out, like, what would this look like? That Moses, as their representative, would beg that God would be with them. They wanted to know that, he would be, that they could be victorious and prosperous if... God's special presence was there. So they would read a story like Jacob, and they'd be intensely interested because they can identify with Jacob. Uh, Jacob, by the way, whose name will one day become Israel, is the guy that they kind of identify with most often. I mean, they can identify with him because Jacob in this particular setting is on the run for his life. You remember that, right? We look back to the previous story and we know that Jacob is leaving not just to find a wife, but he's leaving because his brother is actually trying to kill him. I don't know if you've ever received a legitimate death threat before, but it'll change the way you operate. A hunter, a very successful hunter, someone who is good at killing things, is trying to kill him. His mom makes up a story about the need for a good marriage to convince his dad that it's a good idea to send him away. But we all know why he's really running. Because death is behind him. And so also, the children of Israel knew what it was like to run from death. They had an angry Pharaoh at their heels, or they were either trying to escape a wilderness that had taken millions. I mean, they were constantly on the run for their life. So Jacob is somebody with whom they can naturally identify. But then on top of that, Jacob is facing an unknown future, and so did they. All they know is God has called them to go and conquer this land. And they have no idea what that's going to look like. But this is intimidating, this is scary, this is unknown. And so also, Jacob is facing the scary and the unknown. He's traveling by himself to go see this family that he does not know, hoping that things will calm down enough so that he can come back in safety to the land that he really loves. Remember, he was a homebody. He was a mama's boy. He preferred his own tent. He wasn't one for adventure. He wanted to get back home. This was a scary prospect for him. But here we have in this guy's story just this overwhelming, like assurance of God's presence, and it causes you to kind of sit up and ask, "Well, how? What happened? Like, what did he do? Like, how did this guy then enjoy God's presence? Like, I mean, he's he's a pretty cunning and crafting guy. Like, did he manipulate this somehow? How did he work this thing down?" I mean, did he get in a quiet spot? Was it about, you know, being out in the open under the stars? Is that the reason why God intervened? Like, why did God show up here? That should be the question you're asking. How can we, forget Jacob for a moment, how can we be sure of God's presence? That's what I pray the story will answer for you in the two scenes that we'll look at. The first one is at night. And we'll see the revelation of God's presence in verses 10 through 15. And then the next scene is just simply in the morning. Jacob's response to God's presence in verses 16 to 22. So follow with me again just those first couple verses of the opening scene at night. The revelation of God's presence, verses 10 and 11. Notice what happens here. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place... He put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Do you notice what word was repeated three different times in that one little sentence? Place, place, place. A nondescript place. It won't tell us yet where it is. It's just letting us know that he is at some particular place, some anonymous place. No name, no title, just a place. So he's in an unknown place. But then the text also describes in two separate ways how it's a dark place. It doesn't just say that it was dark, but it also says that the sun had gone down. I mean, the author's being a little superfluous. I know that it's nighttime if the sun had gone down, but he wants to draw out that more. He's saying, all right, this is an anonymous place. This is a dark place. We know that he's fleeing death. And also, it's an uncomfortable place. You've got to be pretty desperate to use a stone for a pillow. I think I'd rather sleep on my arm." And yet, Jacob here, in some sense, uses this stone. Now, just to be clear, because I think all of us are probably thinking the same thing: I would rather sleep on my arm. I would rather sleep on my coat than sleep on a rock. Uh, the, the the Hebrew preposition for like under his head could also mean at his head, and so you'd see other places in the Old Testament, for example, like there was that one scene where Saul was pictured as sleeping with his spear at his head. It's the same preposition. Jacob may have had a rock of some sizable influence beside his head because he was afraid of someone attacking him. It's not saying that he was necessarily sleeping on it, but the point is, it's an uncomfortable place to be. It is unknown, it is mysterious, it is dark, it is dangerous, and so you're getting a feel for like what he's going through right here. Uh, One scholar put it this way, the setting of God's encounter with Jacob matches Jacob's psychological condition. The security of the sun had been replaced by the dangers of night. The comfort of his parents' tent had been replaced by a rock. Behind him lays Beersheba where Esau waits to kill him and ahead of him is Haran where Laban waits to exploit him. He is situated between a death camp and a hard labor camp. And in the darkness of this moment, how will Jacob ever prevail? It's a pretty stunning opening. But let's see how he does prevail in verse 12. It says, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold... The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, I want you to notice this. He dreamed, but that is not something that you do. It is something that happens to you. So Jacob is actually physically incapacitated. I mean, he is at the deepest moment of sleep. Like, he is not doing anything. We've seen a Jacob so far throughout this entire story who is really good at getting stuff done. And here, he can't do anything. He's in a a most desperate and volatile position. And it is at this very point that something happens to him. And it is a dream. And it is a rather strange dream indeed. Because, I mean, we've imagined this picture. For those of you who grew up in church, there were these little cards, you know, that the the teacher would put up. And there was this ladder that was coming from heaven, right? You know what bothered me about that picture when I was a kid? How How do angels go up and down a ladder at the same time? you know, I actually found a solution to that. When you look in uh, just a, a normal lexicon for that particular word, it could either mean ladder or stairs. The point is that there is an access point between heaven above and earth below, and it is at this very point. That's the dream that he's having. Like, Heaven and earth were connecting exactly where Jacob was. These these angels were descending the stairs so that they could accomplish the will of God on earth, which to this point in Genesis has been protecting that which God cares for, like the garden, and protecting Lot, and also announcing or speaking on behalf of God. And so these are God's angels going to do His bidding. They're, They're going down from this place. They're coming back and reporting to Him. We see scenes of that in Job 1 and 2. But it's all happening right here. That God is at work in this place. And what confirms that for us is that it says that Yahweh was at the top of it, the Lord in all caps, the covenant name of God. He's the one that's presiding over this entire operation. And he wants Jacob to know that ground zero for everything that he is doing is right here in this place on that night when he is absolutely helpless. So he has this this dream, there's this scene. But there's something though that is, is special here. God is going to show himself, not just through a dream, but through a declaration. Notice what God says. Verses 13 to 15. And behold, see this, notice this. The Lord stood above it and said... I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Now, pause. There's going to be two things he's going to tell him. He's going to tell him who he is. He's going to tell him what he's going to do for him, and the, what he's going to do for him falls into two categories: the future and the present. Ready? Who he is, he already said. Now he says, the land on which you lie, this is the future I will give to you and your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So there's the future. And now here's the present. Behold, notice this, pay attention. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You see what's going on here? Yahweh is introducing himself to him personally. You would think, well, doesn't Jacob already know who God is? Friends, uh, God has no grandchildren Everyone enters into personal relationship with God. God was in personal relationship with Abraham. God was in personal relationship with Isaac. But up to this point, we have no indication whatsoever that Jacob enjoyed any special relationship with God whatsoever. In fact, he's only used God's name one time up to this point, and that was in a lie. He was using God's name in vain to advance his own agenda. The dude is a crooked cheat. He is not to some great patron saint of the Old Testament faith. Like up to this point, he is a scoundrel. And God shows up and says, hey, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And he's making him an offer here. He says, I'm going to be your God too. He says, get to know me. You've used my name and abused it. He said, but now let me let you know who I really am. I am a God of grace. And listen to what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to do the same thing for you that I promised to do with Abraham and with Isaac. Even though you don't deserve it. You never laid down your life in any kind of sacrifice. You, you never obeyed me in any like, faithful way like Abraham did and took a risk. Even though you've done jack squat to deserve my grace, I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'm going to include you in on the same promises of land and lineage there will be blessing through you because of me that's quite an introduction and those future promises don't lose sight of that that's what the nation of Israel would find hope in because they wanted to be reminded that what they were doing was going to work that there would be a land that they would actually occupy remember they're facing opposition And that there would be a lineage that would come from them. There would be offspring. That they would have a mighty nation. And I love the way that Yahweh describes it here. He says, and your descendants, and they're going to go out, and they're going to go north and south and east and west. And and they're going to pass on blessing to all the families of the earth. You, You know what it's describing? It's describing something that is incontainable. Like, you can't keep it in. He said, it's just going to overflow. I mentioned it in the pastoral prayer, but I mean, all of our minds have been just inevitably enamored with what has been going on in China over the last couple weeks. I mean, you've got this this illness that starts in this little city, Wuhan. And before the government ever says that there was a problem, five million people had already gone out for vacation for Chinese New Year. And now, they're quarantined that particular city, but it's too late. This thing can't be stopped. I mean, it's not only like infected the entire country, but just look at the map. It's updated every day. You've got it in the United States, Great Britain, Australia. I mean, here it is. North, south, east, west. The destruction is just spreading. It can't be contained. God is describing the antithesis of this. He's saying, what I'm going to do through you is going to be incontainable limitless like no one will be able to stop it it's not going to be cursing but it's going to be blessing your your family is going to grow to such a degree and they're going to spread out all over the entire world and my blessings will cover the globe i mean this is a huge promise that this guy of all people gets to be a part of but notice he doesn't just make him future promises and talk about the long term of nations the land the lineage he also talks about his immediate situation. I think all of us kind of long sometimes, not just for the promises of a one day or a someday, but a right now. I mean, the promise of heaven is great, a new heavens and a new earth, but you're thinking like, what about what I'm facing right now? <laughs> what about you know the, the academic mess that I have myself in what about the relational struggles that I'm going through what about the physical crisis that I'm enduring what about like my emotional pain in this moment what are you going to do about that God and he says I'll take care of your future Jacob listen and I'm going to take care of your now and how does God help Jacob in the moment it's with a simple assurance notice it again in the text He says in verse 15, behold, pay attention to this, I am with you. Not I will be with you, I am with you. We need to do a little time out and have a brief theology lesson for a moment. Everyone in the room, I think, would know and agree with if you believe in an almighty God that he is omnipresent or everywhere present right so it'd be natural to ask at this point like oh whoop-dee-doo you know what's God already with him what does he mean by I will be with you how is that supposed to be helpful if God is already everywhere anyway well technically speaking you're right God is indeed fully present everywhere he's not just partially there he's fully there but listen to this He is not everywhere in the same way doing the same things. He is not everywhere in the same way doing the same things. So typically when the Bible speaks about God's presence, it is not just talking about His ontological presence, the fact that He is there. It is talking about the intention of His presence, the fact that He is present to bless as opposed to present to curse. Read Psalm 139. It's one of the clearest psalms in all the Bible on God's omnipresence. And you know what it ends with? Everybody always ends at two verses short. It ends with the promise that God will judge his enemies. It's not just a comforting thing for the saint. It's a challenging thing. God's presence is different for different people. Friends, God is present in hell. That's what Psalm 139 says. Forget Augustine's line about you know hell being wherever God is not. God is everywhere. And in hell, he is pouring out his judgment. And in heaven, or what we think of as heaven, he is pouring out his grace. And here he is saying to Jacob, I am with you. Not just generally speaking, but I am with you to bless. How do we know that? The text says it. He says, I will be with you and I will protect you. I am not just present, but I will protect. I will keep you. I will ensure that all these things will happen. And he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Friends, let's um, back up to our original question again. What does this have to do with the presence of God in our own lives? What, what do we see in light of truth disclosed up to this point? That ends God's revelation at night. Well, I hope that you would deduce from this that God is present to bless not in the life of the victorious or the deserving, or the capable. But God shows Himself to be present, to bless those who are undeserving, those who are defeated, those who are incapable. This really puts a lot of challenge to the work it up method of securing God's presence. Because Jacob did nothing to earn God's presence nothing in fact he did a bunch of stuff to earn god's wrath and yet god would still pour out his grace on him anyway this isn't just some isolated thing that you see in the text this is new testament gospel truth this is something that you and i are to hold on to for on a regular basis I mean, Paul uses it as the basis of his admonition to show kindness to, like, you know, mean authorities, to people who are abusing you. And, like, he drops this theological nugget in Titus, and you can just listen to it. He says in Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. I mean, listen to that rap sheet. This is a downright scoundrel. He says, we were this, but notice, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, kind of like in a dream, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why? So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is New Testament theology and practice. You must be careful, friends, that you don't think that you in any way... Can manipulate or experience the presence of God as a result of what you do. God shows His presence to those who don't deserve it. In fact, I would say it this way God's presence precedes our performance, God's presence precedes our performance. Some of you, by default, naturally think that your performance precedes God's presence. And yet the text of the Old Testament and the truth of the New Testament is still the same. You don't deserve it. And He gives it to you anyway. And this should give you hope. This should give us hope for the things that we are trying to accomplish together, like as a church, as the people of God, and things that we're trying to accomplish individually. in our individual walks with Christ. I mean, think about something as huge, as insurmountable, as challenging as the Great Commission. I mean, we've been given a mission as a church to make disciples of every nation. I mean, like, to display God's glory by, like, actually giving people truth about Jesus and seeing them follow him. Like, how do we ever do this? How do we ever see other people come to follow Jesus? What part do we play in that? Like, I mean, look, we need God's help in this, and sometimes we think, That You know what, if we we do this, if we do it right, we do it hard, we're very intentional, then God will show up and bless us. But guess what? You know what Jesus told his followers before he ascended back into heaven and he left them that last command? He gives them the great commission, but before he says it, he says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. He gives them the command, make disciples, and then he ends it with this. And lo, quoting from the King James here because it just comes. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. It's not just about the command. It's not just about the performance. He says, you will be able to perform because I am present. That's how you accomplish this mission. Some of you can work yourselves into a frenzy thinking about all the missed opportunities, all the evangelism that you're trying to do in your home with your family, and you're just so worried that you're not doing it the right way or the right time. And listen, the big deal is not your performance, but His presence. You need to be more enamored with the fact that He is with you than you are that you're doing it wrong presence will lead to better performance this is something that should assure us as a church the church continues to grow it's good to see you all here today and look we find ourselves just even our last members meeting wondering like how are we going to care for all you I'm struggling with the relationships I already have and then more people come in I'm like man how am I going to like love and care for them too and that's not just a pastoral problem that's all of us I don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but here's what I do know. It's not going to be my performance that achieves God's presence. It's going to be God's presence that enables our performance. This is for us as a whole, as a church, and listen, friends, it is for you individually. Every one of you have unique struggles or opportunities. They're two different things. Unique struggles or opportunities that God's presence will actually enable victory or success. Some of you have private sins, whether they be sexual sins or whether they be social sins, like interpersonal things, that you just keep thinking, if I will just, like, if I could just like, like grit my teeth and I could push through and I get victory on this thing, I will then enjoy the smile and pleasure of God. No, you got it all backwards. You understand the smile and pleasure of God and then you can overcome those particular sins. Not just struggles, but opportunities. Whether it be representing Christ in your business, or representing Christ in your sickness, or representing Christ in your financial chaos. You know there are opportunities there. You know that all things are ultimately for His glory. You're good you're like, I'm just really struggling to like, work this thing out. I, like, I don't know like, how I'm going to like, put him on display in the midst of this hardship. I feel like I'm really failing in this opportunity. Hold on to the fact that he's already showed you his gracious presence and he will enable you to represent him the way that you should in whatever opportunity may be on your heart or mind. So, the scene is, is really clear. You've got at night, God reveals his presence. But the sun rises. The morning comes, and it's in the morning that we see Jacob's response to God's presence. So the revelation of God's presence is in verses 10 through 15. That comes first. That's very intentional. And then after that, we see the response to God's presence in verses 16 to 22. Now look at verse 16 and 17 again. Notice how Jacob responds to this. We haven't heard anything from him yet. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Do you notice that? Like God was already there. It's not that God just showed up. God was there, but now Joseph knows. Now he's been reminded. Now he's been assured. God was in this place. I didn't know it. And and notice how he responds to God's presence in in verse 17, and he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! Awesome is a good word, often overused in our culture, but it it literally means that which produces awe. I I like the word awe because, you know, all it is is just, it's onomatopoetic. It it, it is something that describes, it's a sound that describes something that actually happens. So, like when you see something truly mind-blowing, amazing, your mouth opens and you're awe. (laughs) Right? Like... And we're so desensitized because of technology and internet and cool special effects and movies and that kind of thing. Like we've also almost lost the ability to express awe. But Jacob here had none of that stuff to deaden him. He's truly in awe of what has happened. He fears. Remember the old Christian song you know, that was popular on the radio probably 15 years ago, where the guy asked, you know, if I I could only imagine what it would be like to see God in. You know, will he dance? Will he cry? I don't know what he's going to do, but certainly part of it would be fear and awe that the Almighty God is with him. He is blown away. And he is so blown away that it leads him to want to remember this moment, to capture it. He doesn't have a camera. He doesn't have a diary. So so what does he do? How does he, like, think back so he never forgets this fact that God is with him? He he enacts a a visible representation of it. Notice it says that early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And what is this? You take a stone that's normally lying flat and he just turns it up. He pours oil on top of it. He's just making a memorial. Friends, that's what a statue is. It's a little more elaborate than a stone with oil on top of it, but why do we create statues? Why do we take rocks, do some stuff to them, and then set them up in public places? Because we're trying to remember something. We're trying to remember a person. We're trying to remember an event. Uh, This is the Old Testament crude version of someone making a memorial. This is so important to him, he wants to remember, and he takes whatever he's got, and that is the rock that was by his head at night, and the oil that he would use to bake his flour through the day. He pours it on top and says, I want to remember this. This is where God dwells. He ultimately recognizes that what at one time, listen to this, was just a place. A place. The place, unknown, mysterious, has now become the place. The place of God. Particularly, the house of God. Beth El. That's literally what the Hebrew is. El, the the Hebrew word for God. And then Beth, house. Beth El, the house of God. And notice that little note. (laughs) This is pretty cool. Because that place that we thought was a no place that was just like anonymous and not important... The narrator says, oh, actually, by the way, that was the city of Luz. Now, that may not mean much to you, but if you were an archaeologist, you would know of the city of Luz because they actually have understood that this was one of the most prominent and well-explored cities in all of the, the land of Israel, even to today. It was a huge city. And yet the narrator intentionally won't tell us what city it is. He just calls it the place, the place, the place. And then once God shows up, now it has significance. God didn't care one iota about how popular that place was to the surrounding nations. What he did care about is whether or not his presence was known there. And once it was known, something changed. What was once a place is now the house of God. What was once just a meaningless rock, maybe a means of protection, or by some stretch, maybe even a pillow, has now become a place of memorial. But I want you also to see what this does, not just to the objects. The presence of God changes the place. The presence of God changes the objects. But notice how the presence of God changes the person. Because Jacob continues. He he cries out in, in verse 16. Excuse me, verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar... He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. And now see what happens next. Then, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I will go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Notice how it changes Jacob. Jacob here, for the first time, has bowed his knee, if you will, to Almighty God. Here's a guy who's been running life his own way, and now once he knows that God is going to be with him in a special way, it changes the way that he lives. Now, um, you ready for something complex? in the way that our translations normally put it, it seems as if Jacob is like making a deal again. <laughs> He's like, all right, God, if you give me everything that I want, everything that I'm hoping for, then at that point, I, I, I'll serve you. We, we all know what it's like to kind of make those deals. <laughs> but I, I want you to know, though, that like, in the original text, and I don't do this very often, so just please pardon me. In the original text, it's not clear where the if and the then starts. So, like, if you were, like, a grammar geek, like, you would know that the if statement in something is called the protasis. You know, that's, like, these are the conditions. And, like, the main thing, like, the, you know, what you're vowing to do, that's the apothesis. Like, this is how I'm going to act it out. The then, if, then, protasis apodosis. Well, in Hebrew, like, there's an if, and it's at the very beginning, right? But there's no then. Like, if you read this literally, it just keeps saying, and, 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 and. so you have to, like, like, figure out, like, where to, like, put the comma. Like, where are you going to make this thing say then? Well, the translators have just naturally put it here at this section about God. But there's a grammatical reason and a theological reason why I don't think that's actually the best place to put the comma. Uh, grammatically, the, the verbs, please, look, check out for, like, 60 seconds if this is boring to you and then come back to me. The verbs in the if are all of the same tense. And they don't change until it gets to the next verse where Jacob says, I'm going to set up this thing as a house of God and I'm going to give a tenth. So it would be weird for the then to change if the verb tense hadn't changed. And the second is theological. Jacob, in the next few chapters, is going to repeatedly assure himself that God is with him. That God is his God. He doesn't like wait till he gets to the end and then says, oh, okay, all right, great. God, you can be my God now. God doesn't make such deals. It isn't about whether Jacob receives God. It's about whether God receives Jacob. And so I want you to to read it that way because I think we're on the best grounds to do so. And notice Jacob's response to God's revelation of His presence. He says, if God, you will be with me and will keep me in this way, which God said he would do. And will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. And saying that he would protect him. He already assured him of that. And that you come again, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. God already told him he would bring him back. And you shall be my God. He already said that I would, he would do that. God said, I will be your God. I will be with you. I will protect you. Here's then. Then the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. I'll come back and I'll build a temple in this place. And then, all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And here we see this Old Testament practice of the tithe. They're giving a tenth of one's income to God. The point is, friends, that Jacob already enjoyed the revelation of God's presence, and his response is just further faithfulness and obedience. He wants to remember God by building him a house, and he wants to return to God that which was given him because he knew, he knew that it came from God ultimately. And so we see an affirmation of our initial little thesis that performance doesn't precede presence, but presence precedes performance. It's only after Jacob realizes what God has done for him that he makes commitments to do things for God. You've got to get the one before the other. To pardon the old phrase, you can't get the cart before the horse. Like, like the, the thing that drives this is the theological reality that God has already graciously shown him his presence, but then from that comes expressions of worship, like, "I will build you a temple. I will give to you that which you have, uh, give back to you that which you have blessed me with." And so we have here Jacob as a different man. And what is it that's made the difference? Uh, what is the difference between Jacob at night and Jacob in the morning? Was it the place? No, it was the person. It is the person that makes the place special. It is not the place that makes the person special. I I think you would know this to be true in your own life. Think back to the most special, like two of the most special places in all of your existence, your childhood, your young adult years. Two places come to mind in my own heart. One of them is my grandfather's fireplace. Like he actually found these old brick From some place like in the county that we grew up in, and he got them all, and like he built that thing on his own, and it was like a true wood burning fireplace. And every winter, and we actually had winter in North Carolina, like I remember like going to his house like multiple times through the season and standing on that thing and just like feeling the warmth of that and having a conversation. We would just talk. What made that place special wasn't the old brick, I didn't care about the old brick. It wasn't about the warmth. I could have got that anywhere. It was about the person. The theology here is really clear. Though Jacob doesn't know how to best convey it, he's talking about this is Bethel, this is the portal of God. But what matters and what God wanted Jacob to ultimately know had nothing to do with the city of Luz. It had everything to do with God's gracious presence in the life of Jacob. God is the one who made his life special. The presence of God is what actually enables, like, this radical change in performance. See, we need a better theology, friends, of sacred space. You know why I don't call this room that we're in right now a sanctuary? No offense if you call it that. But it's just a room. It's just a room. This isn't a temple. We are a temple, but this is not a temple, this is a building. And I think it should be done well. I think it should look nice. I think, don't think it should be distracting. Don't get me wrong. But I say we need a better theology of sacred space. What makes a space special? It isn't the building. It, it is the function. It, it is the revelation of a person. See, the Old Testament has always had, like, God would manifest or, or, like, show himself in different ways. I mean, here, it was in a dream. Before this, it was in a garden. After this, it would be in a tabernacle. And then things would change up and it would be in a temple. And guess what? Then things would change again and the manifest presence of God would be represented in none other than Jesus Christ himself. We just sang about it back at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And so Jesus then became the physical manifestation of God's presence. And guess what? He ascends into heaven and then he sends the Holy Spirit to assure us of his presence. And now where does God dwell? Where does he live? How do we know and enjoy his presence? In the ministry of the Holy Spirit and our own hearts. And listen to this, in the collective people of God. The Bible says that each and every one of you who are trusting in Christ actually have the Holy Spirit living inside you. God is with you. But listen to this. Even more often than it talks about your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, it talks about the church, the local church together being the place where God's presence is known and felt. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. It calls the local church uh, the place of God's presence, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like God manifests himself still in special ways as the church gathers to hear the preaching of the word. And as the church gathers to commemorate the ordinances, which is what we'll do in a few moments. And then one day, there'll be no need for this. One day, there'll be no more signs. Signs. One day it will be the unadulterated presence of God in a new heavens and a new earth that Jesus Christ himself is building as he is away. But God's presence always is the activating agent in his people. It's not just a New Testament thing. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Presence always precedes performance. And I'll leave you with this final picture. It reminds me of parenting. The same truth is something that we take in, like in our own like, paradigm with our children. We, even with our kids, we don't think that performance precedes presence. We know that presence precedes performance. I mean, could you imagine a mother saying to their little nine-month-old, all right, once you can get up and walk on your own, then I'll hold your hand. Or or what dad would actually say to one who's trying to ride that bike without the training wheels for the first time, all right, once I see you starting to make some progress without these training wheels, then I'm going to run beside you. Performance doesn't precede presence, presence precedes performance. The mom is with the child in its face, like to, to help it walk, and the dad runs alongside the bike. In those initial stages. like That's what enables like, the capacity to like, obey and to grow and to leverage opportunity. And, and that is exactly how God works. That is, that is what He wants us to see in this text. We're not working it out. We're not praying it down. We're not taking it in. We're living it out. It's already there. For those who are in Christ, God's blessing, His manifest presence, will not be disclosed to you in some random dream. It has already been disclosed to you in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, where Paul says that all of God's blessings have come through and in Christ. So in light of that, I would only ask you two questions. I challenge you maybe in two ways. One is positively. Positively. Knowing that God is present with you in the Lord Jesus Christ, how will that impact your life for Him in the week to come? What impact will His presence have on your performance this week? Is it in a relationship? Is it an opportunity? Is it in a struggle over sin? I would encourage you to to walk into that with faith. Not saying if I win, then I get God's presence. But knowing that you have God's presence and then entering into that struggle or opportunity. And then negatively... If there's no worship, there's no awe, there's no adoration, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I don't know God's presence, I don't even know what you're talking about with experiencing God's presence in Jesus, this doesn't really make much sense to me. If you have, if you have no awareness of the presence of God in Christ, I would simply call on you, to the best of what you do know, to rely on Christ and so enjoy the presence of God. See, it has been sin that has separated you from God. I know he's everywhere, but he's not everywhere to bless, right? So there's relational space between you and God. Sin is what has caused that. And Christ is the one that came in and like he actually lived the righteous life to bridge that gap and he took away the sin by dying, like he paid the penalty for it, like God was rightfully angry over this, and Jesus said, I'll pay it, and through his death on the cross, he absorbed it. And by rising again from the dead, it's showing that God received that payment, and that you could have victory over these things that put relational distance between you and God. And so, if you want to enjoy God's presence, there's, there's nothing that you do, there's nothing that you work up, it's just simply about relying on what Christ has already done for you. And I would beg you to do that today. And If that doesn't make sense, talk to me. Talk to a church member, whoever brought you. I mean, there's nothing more important than that. So positively, how will the presence of God impact your performance? Negatively, if you don't know the presence of God, you need to rely on Jesus alone. And I think that this is an amazing way for us to end. God knows that it is easy for us to forget His presence. (laughs) And so He leaves the church This is cool. He leaves the church with a tangible reminder or sign of the presence that we already enjoy through the Lord's table. Communion.